Today we're back in Genesis chapter 9, and today we're remembering that the story of Christmas did not start with a baby. The story of Christmas started with a promise. When the world first fell into sin, led by Adam and Eve, God promised, and he actually made the promise to the tempting serpent, that an offspring of the woman was going to come and was going to crush his head. And the rest of the Bible unfolds as an answer to that promise. Uh, Amy was telling me, she heard someone speaking once who who basically said, the rest of the Bible is a footnote to that promise. An offspring of the woman will come. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. Now, I'm not sure I'd want to call the Bible a footnote, but we can say that the rest of the Bible is that promise unfolding and being fulfilled. The whole rest of history, if we think that God is the God of history and the Bible is his plan, then that means that all of history from that point forward unfolds within this expectation of a victorious, conquering offspring of the woman who's going to come and make all things right again. That's the story. Now, if we know that that's this big promise, then as we track through through Genesis, we realize that when we get to chapter 6, we see a major challenge to that promise. Okay, God's promise, offspring of the woman, going to come and crush the serpent. And, and the implication there is, is make all things good again, make all things right, make all things the way that they should. But when we get to Genesis chapter 6, we see that the offspring of Adam and Eve have become so wicked that God needed to destroy them all. It was, it was only 10 generations from Adam and Eve to the flood. And in 10 generations, they had gotten so bad that God had to destroy them. And so what does it look like? It looks like the serpent won. He tempted Eve to eat the fruit. 10 generations later, the entire planet's getting destroyed by the wrath of God. Because people have gotten that wicked. So where's the promise? Where's the serpent crusher in that? Where's the serpent crusher and the promise of a savior in a global flood? Well, the answer to that question is found in Noah and his ark. That's what we need to see here is that Noah and his ark and the family being saved is not just about Noah's righteousness. It's about this promise of an offspring of the the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's about that promise being maintained And so God saves Noah and his family, a faithful remnant. And as he saves them, there's a a crack in in the doorway of hope that's kept open. That a savior may yet come from the line of Eve, just like God promised. But what about the bigger problem? What about the sinfulness in the heart of man? Right? The flood didn't fix that problem because we heard last week from Genesis 8.20 that after the flood, after the flood, God says the, the, the intentions of, of man's hearts are wicked from youth. So the flood didn't actually solve the real problem, something we're going to see very clearly next week. And so as we track with the story of Genesis, one of the questions we should be asking right at this point in the story is, how is God's plan of redemption going to unfold if every 10 generations things get so bad that God needs to wipe people out and start over again? How is the plan of salvation going to unfold like that? How are we ever going to get 
to the serpent-crushing Savior, how are we ever going to get to Christmas if this cycle keeps repeating itself and people keep getting themselves judged off the face of the planet like this? And the answer to that question comes in Genesis chapter 9 and this covenant that God makes with Noah and all creation. Now, Genesis chapter 8 pointed us in this direction as Noah offered a sacrifice and God said in his heart that he would never again flood the earth. While the earth remained, he would ensure stability in the seasons. And that gets fleshed out in chapter 9 here as God formalizes a covenant with Noah. So we're going to start by looking at, at, at point A, if you follow along on the outline that you got in your bulletin, a covenant confirmed. Our entire passage today has to do with the covenant, but the, the language of covenant doesn't actually get used until verse 9. And that's where actually where we're going to start for a moment, because there's something that, that's important for us to notice. In verse 9, God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now, a covenant... They show up all the time in the Bible. Covenant's a binding relationship where two parties pledge themselves to keep certain commitments to each other. I remember someone once saying, man, you use the word covenant a lot. Well, it's because I'm preaching the Bible. It's everywhere, okay? And, 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 and a covenant is this binding relationship where two parties pledge themselves to keep certain commitments to each other. Now, there's, there's two very important ways in which, the, in which covenants are introduced in the Bible. And and, and, it actually comes down to very specific words that are used. First, when a covenant is first established between two parties. So when when a new covenant is established between two different parties, there's a specific Hebrew word that's used. And in English, it's often translated as make a covenant. Now, the Hebrew word there is literally cut a covenant. I will cut a covenant with you. That's the language for, for when a covenant's first made. And you might wonder, why cut a covenant? And the answer we're going to see is in Genesis 15, when Abraham cuts the animals in half and walks between them. And we're going to, we're going to look at that there. Because literally, covenant-making ceremonies very often included this, this act of butchering an animal. It was very symbolic in what we're going to get there. But in other cases, when a covenant already existed, there would be a time when the covenant parties would pledge themselves anew and afresh to uphold that covenant, to keep that covenant that had already been cut. And the word, it's a very specific word that's used there, and that's often translated in English as establish my covenant. At least that's how the ESV translates it. And so every time this this Hebrew word that we see is establish my covenant is used in the Old Testament, it's not talking about cutting a new covenant. It's talking about upholding, making good on a covenant that was already there. A covenant partner saying, I'm going to keep that. And so in verse 9 of chapter 9, God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. So this is important because God is not starting a brand new covenant relationship between himself and creation here. Right? It's all creation. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. God is not starting a new covenant relationship here with creation. What God is doing is confirming, upholding, establishing a covenant that already exists. And so this brings us back to, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 
God was already in a covenant relationship with creation. And Adam was the, head, was the covenant head. And God was already in this relationship with creation. And what he's promising now is that he's going he's gonna to make good on that covenant. And he's reestablishing that covenant. Now, instead of Adam as the head of that covenant, we now have Noah. And Noah in these verses is portrayed very much as a second Adam. And that's very important. You might think, well, isn't Jesus the second Adam? Well, hang on to that thought for a few books of the Bible. Uh, we're, and, but actually, just, just wait till next week. Okay? Next week, we're going to flesh out that idea a little bit more. But what we're seeing here... In Genesis 1 and 2, God was in a covenant relationship with creation. And that covenant is being affirmed and reestablished now with Noah as as the second Adam. And this shows up when we look at the kinds of obligations that Noah and his family had. So if we look now at point B, when we look at at the, the responsibilities and privileges that Noah and his sons are given in this covenant... They, they mirror what we see in Genesis 1 very, very clearly. So first of all, let's go back to verse 1 now in chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons. Very similar language to Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. And what does God say to Noah and his sons? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same as verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. Identical language, essentially. To Genesis 1.28, where God blessed Adam and Eve and told them, be fruitful and multiply. So we see here Noah's like a new Adam and he's being tasked to, to fill the earth. Now, what's back in Genesis 1, after saying that to do that, God told them to have dominion over the animals. And in a similar kind of a way, God now says in verse 2 of chapter 9, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands. They are are delivered. So it doesn't use the word dominion, but the concept is there. Just like Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. No one ascends. Be fruitful, multiply, and you are having this measure of dominion over all the animals. But there is a slight difference here, right? This idea of the fear and the dread of people being on the animals is a bit of a new idea. It's a part of this idea of dominion, but we didn't see this back in Genesis 1. And so we might have a suspicion that that something is a little different here. And that suspicion is going to get borne out when we get to our third point here. Back in Genesis 1, after telling them to be fruitful, multiply, and giving them dominion over the animals. One of the things that God did was he provided, this is in Genesis 1 and 2, he provided food for them. Every green tree shall be yours, every seed-bearing plant, he gave them food to eat. So here, as God reestablishes this covenant, he gives people food to eat. But there's something different here. Verse 3 of chapter 9, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So, quick point. At this point, uh, Noah had an understanding that there's a difference between clean and unclean food. Clean and unclean animals, rather. But that didn't impact his diet. 
Okay? So he was allowed to eat anything. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Although clearly a wise man will know that some things are better to eat than others. Um, but it's very clear there. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Eating animals is a part of the post-fall reality. Before sin entered the world, it's hard to imagine them eating food, uh, eating animals. It's hard to imagine that in the perfection of Genesis, killing and, and eating an animal. But now that sin has entered the world and they're living in the reality of the post-fall world, God gives them animals for food. If you are eating turkey today, do it with a clean conscience. It is one of the blessings of the Noahic covenant that you get to enjoy many of God's creatures on your plates. And this is, I mean, we chuckle, but this is a, this is a gift of God. We're, we're allowed to eat meat. God provided this for us. Now, it's interesting because if, we start to see the pieces come together here, because if man and animal were still living in that, in that pre-fall perfection, man, this could be really uh, dangerous to the animals that people are now allowed to eat them and they can just walk up to any animal they want and kill it and eat it. And, and so we can see now how God puts the fear of man onto these animals as a way to protect the animals, as a way to help them uh, not, not just be completely at the mercy of people. This is a way of taking care of them. It's interesting as I think about hunting, something I've learned how to do uh, in the past few years. Uh, an important part, an important concept in hunting is, is the concept of fair chase. That the animal needs to have a fair chance of, of being able to get away from you. And, and the natural fear of humans is, is a big part of that. If you're out hunting and an animal smells you or sees you, it's out of there as I, and I'm sure some of you have experienced in some very painful ways, and I can tell you stories later. But that's, that's, that's Genesis 9, acting itself out. It's hard to kill and eat an animal. They don't want to be caught. And even for, with more domesticated animals, those of you who have butchered chickens or loaded cows onto a trailer, you know they, they don't want to be eaten. They, they make you work for them. And that's, again, all a part of this Noahic covenant. We can eat them, but they're naturally afraid of us. And we're going to have to work for this. And that's, that's all a part of God's plan. Now, of course, God is describing broad strokes realities here. We can uh, domesticate animals and raise them. And we can have pets. And not every single animal everywhere is afraid of us. But as a general pattern, now that food has been extended to include animals... God protects them by making them afraid of people. Now God also, so God wants us to respect animals. And one of the ways he does this, we've just looked at, but there's another way. And this gets into our fourth sub point here about eating blood. When we eat an animal, God wants us to recognize that something lost its life so that we could keep on living, right? So that we could eat and, and, and have food. And he wants us to respect that life. And more than that, he wants us to respect the giver of that life. And so we see in verse 4, he prohibits us. He, he makes it not an option for us to eat blood. 
but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So there's an important connection that we see many times in the rest of the Bible. It's this connection between life and blood. Now, see, we know today that blood carries oxygen to the rest of our bodies, and that when the blood flow cuts itself off, there's no oxygen and there's no life. And that's something we understand from a scientific standpoint. Even back here, they would have understood that if something loses a lot of blood, it dies. Okay? That, that's just obvious from the beginning. And so this, this connection between life and blood is there all throughout the Bible. And so God wants them to have this built-in respect for animals. And he's also helping prepare them for the sacrificial system where the shedding of blood points to the loss of a life, which helps us see that a life was shed for us, a life was given for us, rather. And actually, this is all preparing us for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we talk about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from our sin, we know it's not the actual red and white blood cells and plasma, but it's the fact that his blood shows us that a life was given for us. And it all starts here. So you're not to eat animals, you're not to eat flesh with the blood in it. An animal's body needs to be dressed and drained before it could be eaten. And this helps people maintain a real respect for life. Now this discussion on lifeblood goes into this fifth statement here. We're thinking this renewed covenant, man's responsibilities and privileges. There's a fifth one. This is big and this is new. This has no parallel at all with, with Genesis. And it has to do with murder. What was one of the big problems that caused the flood? It was violence, right? Genesis 6.11, the earth was filled with violence. Post-flood, after the flood, people's hearts haven't changed. They're still wicked. So what's God going to do to help curb violence? What's he going to do to help the violence in the heart of man not take over the way that it did before? And the answer is verse 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. If a person or an animal kills another person, then that person or animal is to be put to death. Those who take lives are to have their own lives taken. This is the principle of the death penalty, and it was God's idea. And this is God's appointed means of curbing violence within the human race. Now, what we need to, we need to understand a few things here. This is not the last word God spoke on this topic. In Israel's law, there were all kinds of checks and balances uh, and protections built into the way they exercised this law. This principle. So this is not a blank check for personal revenge or vendettas. And some people, some modern interpreters have wisely pointed out that in our modern world, this principle can potentially be a lot more complicated than it was in earlier times in history. So we need to be careful in the way that we apply this. And that's fair. 
But we can't miss the big idea. Genesis chapter 9, God's way of curbing violence is the death penalty. If you kill, you will be killed. This is God's idea. Whoever takes a human life deserves to have his own life taken. And why is that? Well, because unlike animals, humans are absolutely unique. Made, as we're reminded in verse 6, in God's own image. And so the life of men is to be treated on a way higher level than the animals. Now again, I'm not talking this morning about applying this principle. And there's, I'm, I'm not talking about anything related to politics or political or, or judicial theory here. I'm just pointing out the principle from Genesis chapter 9. That killing someone else in justice it was God's idea. And, and was a part of, of his plan for this post-reality world, a post-fall reality. So these are people's responsibilities in the covenant relationship. And what's most important is that they be fruitful and multiply. And we know that's most important because it gets repeated. Verse 1, verse 7. These are the bookends. Remember, it's called an inclusio because inclu- everything else is included in the middle. Verse 1, be fruitful, multiply. Verse 7, and you be fruitful, multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God wanted his world to be full of his images. Right? This is God's plan is to bring glory to himself. He made people in his image to bring him glory. We're living statues of the living God. And he wanted this earth to be full of living statues of himself. And so he tells them to fill up the earth. Notice thing for a moment. If the heart of humanity is still sinful, why would they be fruitful and multiply? Why would Noah and his kids go out and have a whole lot of babies if everyone's just going to be wicked and they're going to kill each other and they're all going to get destroyed by a flood again in a few years? And that leads us into point C, God's commitments in this covenant. Verse 8. The King James Version actually captures this a little bit better, in my opinion. Captures the original a little bit better. It translates verse 9 like this. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. So in other words, verse 1 to 7, Noah, that's your part. Now, verse 8 and following, this is my part. As for me, this is what I'm going to do in this covenant. This is God's side. Of the covenant relationship. Now we're going to consider three aspects. We considered five aspects of, of Noah and humanity's part. Here's three aspects of God's part. First, we're just going to consider who. So verse 8, behold, sorry, verse, verse uh, 9 to 10. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So this is a covenant with creation. And we've seen this already. It's explicitly stated in verse 13. It's between God and the earth. So again, Noah, second Adam. God is in a covenant relationship with all creation. Noah is the human partner, the representative. And this is a covenant for the whole world. That's who. Now, what? Verse 11. Number two, what? Here's what God's commitment in this covenant is. This is really it. This is what God is pledging to the human and the animal world in verse 11. It's very straightforward. I establish my covenant with you. 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay? Hebrew is full of parallels where the same thing gets said twice. So here's another case of that. First, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Second, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Saying the same thing twice gives us sort of this three-dimensional picture and make sure that we really get it. God is emphasizing what just happened will not happen again. Now we know God made this statement to himself in, in chapter 8, 21 to 22. He said to himself that he wouldn't do this again. But here God makes this a commitment and he pledges it to the human and the animal worlds. Now, a few things we need to know here. God is not saying that people will never deserve a global flood again. But despite the ongoing reality of sin, despite the violence that's going to be need, that is going to need to be curbed, God is promising that he will not do again what he had just done. Second, he's also not saying that he's never going to bring judgment in any form whatsoever. So he's not saying I'll never judge any part of the earth. But he's committing to never again cut off all flesh by flood. To never undo creation the way that he had undone creation with the flood. This is his covenant promise. It's very interesting to see what comes next. (laughs) I love this. And we could talk about this for, for a while, but it, it comes down to some very small words. This is, this is one of the reasons why Bible translations matter, because very often it's the, it's the small, few little words that make a difference. And uh, actually, I looked this up in a few translations, and, and, and uh, they all, most of them got it. Look how verse 12 opens. Chapter 9, chapter nine verse 12. And God said... Now, who had, al- who had already been talking? Look at verse 11. Who's talking? God's talking. And verse 12, who, who, has anyone interrupted him or said anything? No. But it says, and God said. Now, this is a, this is a feature in, in Hebrew narrative in the Old Testament. It comes up a lot of different times. You've probably read it dozens of times and not noticed it. That was the case for me. But, but scholars, Robert Alters, the big one who, who kind of highlighted this, is that if you've got a, 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 a case where two people are, are there and one person talks and then you've got this introductory statement again and they said and they keep talking, the idea is that the other person is silent in a, in a significant way. So one, one of the examples... Uh, and I took this out of my notes this morning, but I'm bringing it back in here, is when David and Abishai are in Saul's camp and Abishai says, you know, kill him. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then it says, and David said, and he keeps talking. So the idea is David says, I'm not going to kill Saul. And the, what we should imagine is Abishai just kind of stares at him with an open mouth. He's speechless. And so David has to keep talking because Abishai isn't talking. So that's why we see when someone's talking and then it says, and they said, and they keep talking, it's because there is a significant silence on the other side. Now, maybe it's surprise. Maybe it's incredulity, like where they just have no idea what to say or they can't believe what's going on. 
so we have to sort of fill in the blank here, but here, here's the idea. God is talking to Noah and God says to him, I'm never again going to destroy the earth with a flood. And Noah says nothing. He's, he's speechless. And so God keeps talking. And God, so, so one interpreter this week said that, you know, maybe Noah's a little, like, he just got out of the flood. Like, he, he might need some reassurance. And it's like he's just sort of, like, staring, like, okay, we don't know. We can, we, we need, there's a, we, we don't, we, we don't want to say for sure what's going on here. But what we know, Noah says nothing. And so after a significant silence, the Lord continues to speak. And what he offers to Noah is a sign. A sign of the covenant. This is a pattern we also see many times in the Bible. Where there are significant covenants, there are signs of the covenant. Probably the best illustration of that in our modern uh, world is that when we have a covenant-making ceremony that we call a wedding, there is a sign of the covenant, which is a wedding ring. With this ring, I thee wed. Okay? It's not a magic ring, although it does cause some couples to disappear for extended periods of time, but in their, in their first few years of marriage. But um, sorry, that was, that was a bit of a joke making fun of uh, newlyweds and how they tend to forget everybody else. But what, more what I'm saying is that, um, is that when, with this ring is just a, a, covenant, a covenant sign. It's a symbol and a sign of the covenant. It doesn't do anything magical, but as a sign, it signifies that this covenant has been made. And every time you look at that, you remember that you've, there's this covenant that, that happened. It helps, it helps the covenant partners remember the covenant. Okay? So almost every significant covenant that God makes in the Bible, there is a sign of the covenant. With covenant with Abraham, it's circumcision. His covenant with Israel, it's actually the Sabbath. Is what he says. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between between me and you. And, and in this covenant that he makes with creation with Noah, the sign is what? Well, maybe don't be too quick. What does God say it actually is? Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So the bow, think of it like the wedding ring in this covenant. Here's how it works. When I bring clouds over the earth, this is verse 14 and 15, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is again where Bible translations matter and the little words matter. The original doesn't actually say rainbow. It says bow. And the word that it's used, the word that it uses for bow is a word that's used in most other places in the Hebrew Bible to talk about an archer's bow. Archer's bows often were used as symbols of, of, of conquest and power in other cultures as they thought about their gods. And so many uh, interpreters here have seen that there's a, there's a military significance there. That the rainbow looks like an archer's bow. And the idea is that God has hung up his bow because he's done using it. He's done, he's done this act of judgment against the world and he hangs up his bow and it's a sign of peace. Now there's other guys who say, no, no, it's not there. But it seems to me that, that, seems that it follows pretty clearly. Even if it's not, the basic sense is that 
when it starts raining, just think, think, about, think about Noah and his family. 40 days of rain, living in a boat for 150 days. And, 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 and everything beyond that. What's going to happen to them when it actually starts raining the next time? I mean, think about traumatic experiences. Here it comes again. They're going to they're they're be shaking and trembling and wondering if this is the judgment of God again. See, before we got all smart and figured out everything, actually many cultures and many people throughout history have, have associated storms with divine judgment because they often do a lot of damage. Now, of course, we're so smart that we know that it has nothing to do with God, right? Well, maybe we're not so smart. But Noah and his family see the rain come again. And there's going to be fear. There's going to be concern. There's going to, they're going to associate that storm with God's judgment. And they're going to wonder if maybe God has forgotten and has judged the world again. I mean, we know God doesn't forget. God doesn't need to do this for himself. He doesn't forget. But has that ever stopped you from worrying that he's forgotten about you? Right? We know in our heads God doesn't forget. But in our hearts, have we ever thought, wow, maybe, maybe I'm alone right now. And so when that storm ends, because it will end, think about the fact that the covenant sign comes after the storm. When the rains stop, most often is when the rainbow appears. And they're going to look up and they say, God remembered to not judge the world again. There it is. There's the sign of the covenant. There's the wedding ring. And a reminder that God is in this covenant relationship with planet Earth. And he's not going to destroy it again. This is a, an act of generosity. Because it's, it's for them. God could just say, I'm the Lord. I don't forget but he reminds them and he helps them to see that right in the storm is a reminder of his promise. Now let's go, uh, we've looked at these three aspects, but we're going to sub point four here as we look a little bit more at the, at the meaning of this covenant and this sign. And this is where it gets really important. Okay? These next two points is really where this all comes to land. What's the basic promise in this covenant? He's never going to destroy the world with the flood again. Why would Noah, why would we, even, why would God need to be reminded of that covenant again and again and again? The answer is obvious, if we think about it. We're going to need to be reminded of God's promise to not destroy the world with the flood because we're going to deserve another flood before too terribly long. Right? Think about it. If the flood took care of the sinfulness of people and everyone was great and, and, and it was just a, a lovey-dovey, kumbaya, summer camp experience from that, that point on out, then when the rain would stop, they'd say, oh, that's not going to be a flood because look at how great we are. We're all just doing wonderful. But if the sin in the heart of man is still there, if the wickedness of people is there, then when the rain comes, they're thinking, maybe he's judging us, Right? We know, Genesis 8.20, that people are going to be sinful. I will, God said, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's 8.21. And so Noah and the generations after him, and, and if we were thinking biblically, us, 
When we see the clouds in the sky and hear the thunder and see the storm start, we might be wondering, is God going to judge us again like he judged the people in Noah's day? When it rains, we might wonder, is that rain just going to keep on coming like it did for the people in Noah's day? And then we see the bow in the sky. We remember that God is remembering his covenant to preserve this creation until Christ returns. See, this, this week I, I realized that even some of my thinking, after, even after preaching on this before and studying it, some of my thinking on this was, 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 was a little off base. See, I think for much of my life, I've had this idea that the people in Noah's generation right before the flood, were basically the worst of the worst. If you were to draw a chart of how evil people have been throughout history, that, was, that would be like the high point, okay? They were the worst of the worst. And God judged them with a flood. And the flood basically was effective in putting an end to, to that evil. And God has not flooded the earth since then because, well, yeah, he made the promise, but more basically because we haven't been that bad. We, we've, never, we've never yet gotten as bad as they were before the flood. But if that was true, then this whole covenant and this whole covenant sign would be completely unnecessary. The whole reason for this covenant sign is because we're going to get that bad and get that bad fast. And we're going to need assurance that the flood's not coming again. The reason God has to assure us again and again and again that he's not going to send another flood is because we're going to deserve it. And before too long, the earth is going to be filled with violence. Is the earth filled with violence today? I'm not just talking about countries like Afghanistan or Somalia. I'm talking about here in Canada, where abortion is the leading cause of death. And doctors are being pressured into offering death to their sickest patients. We live in a country filled with violence. It's just sanitized and professionalized. Does Canada deserve the wrath of God? As much as Noah's generation for our perverse celebration of the things that God hates? Of course. And if we truly grasp the righteous character of God and his holy justice, we should tremble. We should know that we deserve the fury of a flood as much as Noah's generation. At least as much as Noah's generation. And that's why this covenant is so promised. That's why this covenant is so precious. That's why the bow in the sky is so precious, because we remember that despite what we deserve, God has promised to not destroy us all with the flood again. And we realize that every day that this planet exists is by the sheer mercy of our covenant-keeping God. So think, oh man, what's all this have to do with everything? Well, I mean, you're, you're literally alive today because of this covenant that God made with Noah. It's the only reason you're alive today. This is everything. Now let's go one layer deeper as we go to our final point. We think about the future. Why did God do this? Why, despite the sinfulness of man, despite the sinfulness of humanity, did God promise to never again destroy the earth with a flood? Was it because he got soft? He saw the flood and he thought, oh, that was an overreaction. And he, and he said, I'm not going to do that again. Was it because God has changed his standards on sin? Was it because God is going to stop dealing with sin and just not take it quite so seriously anymore? Like Santa Claus. Not one bit. 
this covenant with creation, this promise to not destroy the earth by a flood, even though we're going to deserve it, is at its most basic level, if we dig all the way down, a commitment from God that from this point forward, he is going to deal with sin in a fundamentally different way than just judgment. His wrath and his judgment are still very real. There will be localized judgments. There's going to be Sodom and Gomorrah. There's going to be the conquest of Canaan. But God is promising to preserve the earth, to keep history rolling despite our sin, because he has a plan, a plan of salvation, a plan of redemption. In just a few weeks, we're going to hear about the call of Abraham and the promise to bless the nations through his offspring. And we know how that promise took shape through the covenants with Israel and with David until the faithful remnant were waiting together for one to come and keep the promises. And through thousands of years of his people's failures, through exile and low points and high points, through hundreds of years of violence and wickedness, God's plan of redemption marched on up until the birth of Jesus only because of his covenant with Noah. You see how this all fits together, right? He kept the seasons coming. He kept history in motion so that when the fullness of time had come, he could send forth his son. He kept creation rolling despite our best efforts to earn his judgment again so that the angel could say to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. And the shepherds were told, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. The covenant with Noah made all of that possible. Jesus was born to save us because God kept his Genesis 9 promises. So here's a way that we can see it. So we think about the story of the Bible fitting together. This promise, this covenant in Genesis 9 provided a stable platform for the rest of the history of redemption, the rest of the plan of salvation to be built on. Without this, there'd be no stable platform because people would constantly be sinning and judging and the earth would be getting destroyed again and again and, and it's just shambles and chaos. But God says, no, despite it, despite your sin, there's going to be a stable platform for history to unfold so that this long, beautiful plan of the arrival of Jesus can be built and can unfold. And today, today, God continues to uphold and keep his promise, his covenant with creation that he made with Noah as we wait for Jesus to return. And all of this comes down to Genesis 9. So what does today look like for you? What does this week, what does this week look like for you? Maybe today, maybe this week, is going to be full of food and celebration. Maybe today is just going to be another normal day for you. Maybe this week is just another normal week for you. Maybe you wish it wasn't. Maybe today, maybe some days coming up this week are going to be hard because you're missing someone who isn't around this year. Or some other hardship is taking away your sense of the way things should be this time of year. Whatever and wherever you're at, does it help this morning to remember that this week ahead of you, even this day, is happening on purpose? That we're not just lost in an empty 
universe with planets in motion. Just like your grade six science teacher told you, that's not the whole story. This planet today continues to be upheld and go through its motions on purpose. Upheld by a covenant-keeping God, and that purpose is Christ. It's winter right now. The seasons are coming at us faithfully because God is preserving this earth for Christ and his return. History is going somewhere. Your life is going somewhere. And that means that there is meaning to be found in the smallest moments. There's significance in the smallest moments. Every act of faithfulness Every moment that you choose to walk with God in the midst of pain and the mundane, you are playing your part in this great building crescendo of history that is going to reach its peak when the trumpet sounds and the Lord splits the skies. He came. He's here by His Spirit. And he's coming again in the body. And because of that, nothing is meaningless. And so may God cause our lives this day, this week, always, to be shaped by our hope in Christ as we look back and realize we're living a Genesis 9 life. And as we look forward and realize that we're also living Revelation 21 and 22 life. It's all for him. Father, would you help us to taste the goodness of your promises? Would you help us to see the majesty of your story and how it all fits together? Would you help us to realize how our small and often difficult lives are notes in a symphony that is building and building and building every day until you return, Lord Jesus. May that perspective give us joy today. Would you help us as we now celebrate what you've done and what you promised to do?